Chapter Three of the Red Inn by Honoré de Balzac. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three, A Double Retribution. Oh, stop, stop! Cried the young lady who had asked for this history, interrupting the narrator suddenly. Say no more. Let me remain in uncertainty and believe that he was saved. If I hear now that he was shot, I shall not sleep all night. Tomorrow you shall tell me the rest. We rose from table. My neighbor, in accepting Monsieur Herman's arm, said to him, I suppose he was shot, was he not? Yes, I was present at the execution. Oh, monsieur, she said, how could you? He desired it, madame. There was something really dreadful in following the funeral of a living man, a man my heart cared for, an innocent man. The poor young fellow never ceased to look at me. He seemed to live only in me. He wanted, he said, that I should carry to his mother his last sigh. And did you? At the peace of Amiens I went to France for the purpose of taking to the mother those blessed words. He was innocent. I religiously undertook that pilgrimage, but Madame Magnan had died of consumption. It was not without deep emotion that I burned the letter of which I was the bearer. You will perhaps smile at my German imagination, but I see a drama of sad sublimity in the eternal secrecy which engulfed those parting words cast between two graves unknown to all creation like the cry uttered in a desert by some lonely traveller whom a lion seizes and if i said interrupting him you were brought face to face with a man now in this room and were told this is the murderer would not that be another drama and what would you do monsieur herman looked for his hat and went away you are behaving like a young man and very heedlessly said my neighbor look at telefer there seated on that sofa at the corner of the fireplace mademoiselle fanny is offering him a cup of coffee he smiles would a murderer to whom that tale must have been torture present so calm a face isn't his whole air patriarchal Yes, but go and ask him if he went to the war in Germany, I said. Why not? And with that audacity which is seldom lacking to women when some action attracts them or their minds are impelled by curiosity, my neighbor went up to their purveyor. Were you ever in Germany? she asked. Telefer came near dropping his cup and saucer. I, madame? No, never. What are you talking about, Telefer? said our host, interrupting him. Were you not in the commissariat during the campaign of Wagram? Ah, true, replied Telefer. I, I was there at that time. You are mistaken, said my neighbor, returning to my side. That's a good man. Well, I cried, before the end of this evening I will hunt that murderer, out of the slough in which he is hiding. 
Every day before our eyes a moral phenomenon of amazing profundity takes place which is, nevertheless, so simple as never to be noticed. If two men meet in a salon, one of whom has the right to hate or despise the other, whether from a knowledge of some private and latent fact which degrades him, or of a secret condition, or even of a coming revenge, those two men divine each other's souls, and are able to measure the gulf which separates or ought to separate them. They observe each other unconsciously. Their minds are preoccupied by themselves, through their looks, their gestures. An indefinable emanation of their thought transpires. There's a magnet between them. I don't know which has the strongest power of attraction, vengeance or crime, hatred or insult, like a priest who cannot consecrate the host in presence of an evil spirit. Each is ill at ease and distrustful. One is polite, the other surly, but I know not which. One colors or turns pale, the other trembles. Often the avenger is as cowardly as the victim. Few men have the courage to invoke an evil, even when just or necessary, and men are silent or forgive a wrong from hatred of uproar or fear of some tragic ending. This introsusception of our souls and our sentiments created a mysterious struggle between Telefer and myself. Since the first inquiry I had put to him during Monsieur Hermann's narrative, he had steadily avoided my eye. Possibly he avoided those of all the other guests. He talked with the youthful, inexperienced daughter of the banker, feeling, no doubt, like many other criminals, a need of drawing near to innocence, hoping to find rest there. But though I was a long distance from him, I heard him, and my piercing eye fascinated his. When he thought he could watch me unobserved, our eyes met, and his eyelids dropped immediately. Weary of this torture, Telefer seemed determined to put an end to it by sitting down at a card-table. I at once went to bet on his adversary, hoping to lose my money. The wish was granted. The player left the table, and I took his place, face to face with the murderer. Monsieur, I said while he dealt the cards, may I ask if you are Monsieur Frederick Telefer, whose family I know very well at Bouvet? Yes, monsieur, he answered. He dropped the cards, turned pale, put his hands to his head and rose, asking one of the betters to take his hand. It is too hot here, he cried. I fear. He did not end the sentence. His face expressed intolerable suffering, and he went out hastily. The master of the house followed him, and seemed to take an anxious interest in his condition. My neighbor and I looked at each other, but I saw a tinge of bitter sadness or reproach upon her countenance. "'Do you think your conduct is merciful?' she asked, drawing me to the embrasure of a window, just as I was leaving the card-table, having lost all my money. "'Would you accept the power of reading hearts?' Why not leave things to human justice or divine justice? We may escape one, but we cannot escape the other. Do you think the privilege of a judge of the court of assizes so much to be envied? 
you have almost done the work of an executioner after sharing and stimulating my curiosity why are you now lecturing me on morality you have made me reflect she answered so then peace to villains or to the sorrowful and let's deify gold however we will drop the subject i added laughing do you see that young girl who is just entering the salon yes whatever i met her three days ago at the ball of the neapolitan ambassador and i am passionately in love with her for pity's sake tell me her name no one was able that is mademoiselle victorine telefer i grew dizzy her stepmother continued my neighbor has lately taken her from a convent where she was finishing rather late in the day her education for a long time her father refused to recognize her she comes here for the first time she is very beautiful and very rich these words were accompanied by a sardonic smile at this moment we heard violent but smothered outcries they seemed to come from a neighboring apartment and to be echoed faintly back through the garden isn't that the voice of monsieur telefer i said we gave our full attention to the noise a frightful moaning reached our ears the wife of the banker came hurriedly towards us and closed the window let us avoid a scene she said if mademoiselle telefer hears her father she might be thrown into hysterics the banker now re-entered the salon looking round for victorine and said a few words in her ear instantly the young girl uttered a cry ran to the door and disappeared this event produced a great sensation the card-players paused every one questioned his neighbor the murmur of voices swelled and groups gathered can monsieur telefer be i began dead said my sarcastic neighbor you would wear the gayest mourning i fancy but what has happened to him the poor man said the mistress of the house is subject to attacks of a disease the name of which i can never remember though monsieur brosen has often told it to me and he has just been seized with one what is the nature of the disease asked an examining judge oh that is something terrible monsieur she replied the doctors know no remedy it causes the most dreadful suffering one day while the unfortunate man was staying at my country house he had an attack and i was obliged to go away and stay with a neighbor to avoid hearing him his cries were terrible he tried to kill himself his daughter was obliged to have him put into a straitjacket and fastened to his bed the poor man declares there are live animals in his head gnawing his brain every nerve quivers with horrible shooting pains and he writhes in torture he suffers so much in his head that he did not even feel the moxes they used formerly to apply to relieve it but monsieur brosen who is now his physician has forbidden that remedy declaring that the trouble is a nervous affection an inflammation to the nerves for which leeches should be applied to the neck and opium to the head as a result the attacks are not so frequent they appear now only about once a year and always late in autumn when he recovers 
Telefer says repeatedly that he would far rather die than endure such torture. Then he must suffer terribly, said a broker, considered a wit who was present. Oh, continued the mistress of the house, last year he nearly died in one of those attacks. He had gone alone to his country house on pressing business, for want, perhaps, of immediate help. He lay twenty-two hours, stiff and stark as though he were dead. A very hot bath was all that saved him. "'It must be a species of lockjaw,' said one of the guests. "'I don't know,' she answered. "'He got the disease in the army nearly thirty years ago. He says it was caused by a splinter of wood entering his head from a shot on board a boat. Brosen hopes to cure him. They say the English have discovered a mode of treating the disease with prussic acid.' At that moment a still more piercing cry echoed through the house and froze us with horror. "'There, that is what I listened to all day long last year,' said the banker's wife. "'It made me jump in my chair and rasp my nerves dreadfully. But strange to say, poor Telefer, though he suffers untold agony, is in no danger of dying. He eats and drinks as well as ever during even short cessations of the pain. Nature is so queer. A German doctor told him it was a form of gout in the head.' and that agrees with Brosen's opinion. I left the group around the mistress of the house and went away. On the staircase I met Mademoiselle Telefer, whom a footman had come to fetch. Oh, she said to me weeping, what has my poor father ever done to deserve such suffering, so kind as he is? I accompanied her downstairs and assisted her in getting into the carriage, and there I saw her father bent almost double. Mademoiselle Telefer tried to stifle his moans by putting her handkerchief to his mouth. Unhappily he saw me. His face became even more distorted. A convulsive cry rent the air, and he gave me a dreadful look as the carriage rolled away. That evening exercised a cruel influence on my life and on my feelings. I loved Mademoiselle Telefer, precisely, perhaps, because honor and decency forbade me to marry the daughter of a murderer, however good a husband and father he might be. A curious fatality impelled me to visit those houses where I knew I could meet Victorine. Often, after giving myself my word of honor to renounce the happiness of seeing her, I found myself that same evening beside her, my struggles were great. Legitimate love, full of chimerical remorse, assumed the color of a criminal passion. I despised myself for bowing to Telefer when by chance he accompanied his daughter. But I bowed to him all the same. Alas, my misfortune, Victorine is not only a pretty girl, she is also educated, intelligent, full of talent and of charm without the slightest pedantry or the faintest tinge of assumption. She converses with reserve, and her nature has a melancholy grace which no one can resist. She loves me, or at least she lets me think so. She has a certain smile which she keeps for me alone. For me her voice grows softer still. Oh, yes, she loves me. But she adores her father. She tells me of his kindness, his gentleness, his excellent qualities. Those praises are so many dagger thrusts 
with which she stabs me to the heart. One day I came near making myself the accomplice, as it were, of the crime which led to the opulence of the Telefer family. I was on the point of asking the father for Victorine's hand, but I fled, I traveled, I went to Germany, to Andernach, and then I returned. I found Victorine pale and thinner. If I had seen her well, in health and gay, I should certainly have been saved. Instead of which my love burst out again with untold violence, fearing that my scruples might degenerate into monomania. I resolved to convoke a Sanhedrin of sound consciences, and obtain from them some light on this problem of high morality and philosophy, a problem which had been, as we shall see, still further complicated since my return. Two days ago, therefore, I collected those of my friends to whom I attribute most delicacy, probity, and honor. I invited two Englishmen, the secretary of an embassy, and a Puritan, a former minister, now a mature statesman, a priest, an old man, also my former guardian, a simple-hearted being who rendered so loyal a guardianship account that the memory of it is still green at the Palais. Besides these there were present a judge, a lawyer, and a notary, in short, all social opinions, and all practical virtues. We began by dining well, talking well, and making some noise. Then, at dessert, I related my history candidly, and asked for advice, concealing, of course, the Telefer name. A profound silence suddenly fell upon the company. Then the notary took leave. He had, he said, a deed to draw. The wine and the good dinner had reduced my former guardian to silence. In fact, I was obliged later in the evening to put him under guardianship, to make sure of no mishap to him on his way home. "'I understand,' I cried. "'By not giving an opinion you tell me energetically enough what I ought to do.' On this there came a stir through the assembly. A capitalist who had subscribed for the children and tomb of General Foy, exclaimed, Like virtue's self, a crime has its degrees. Rash tongue, said the former minister, in a low voice nudging me with his elbow. Where's your difficulty? asked a duke whose fortune is derived from the estates of stubborn Protestants, confiscated on the revocation of the Edict of Nantes. The lawyer rose and said, "'In law, the case submitted to us presents no difficulty. Monsieur le Duc is right,' cried the legal organ. "'There is no time limitations. Where should we all be if we had to search into the origin of fortunes? This is simply an affair of conscience. If you must absolutely carry the case before some tribunal, go to that of the confessional.' The code incarnate ceased speaking sat down and drank a glass of champagne. The man charged with the duty of explaining the gospel, the good priest, rose. "'God has made us all frail beings,' he said firmly. "'If you love the heiress of that crime, marry her. But content yourself with the property she derives from her mother. Give that of the father to the poor.' "'But!' cried one of those pitiless hair-splitters, 
who are often to be met with in the world. Perhaps the father could make a rich marriage only because he was rich himself. Consequently, the marriage was the fruit of the crime. This discussion is in itself a verdict. There are some things on which a man does not deliberate, said my former guardian, who thought to enlighten the assembly with a flash of inebriety. Yes, said the secretary of an embassy. Yes, said the priest, but the two men did not mean the same thing. A doctrinaire who had missed his election to the chamber by one hundred and fifty votes out of one hundred and fifty-five, here rose. Messieurs, he said, this phenomenal incident of intellectual nature is one of those which stands out vividly from the normal condition to which sobriety is subjected. Consequently, the decision to be made ought to be the spontaneous act of our consciences, a sudden conception, a prompt inward verdict, a fugitive shadow of our mental apprehension, much like the flashes of sentiment which constitute tastes. Let us vote. Let us vote, cried all my guests. I gave each two balls. One white, one red. The white, the symbol of virginity, was to forbid the marriage. The red ball sanctioned it. I myself abstained from voting out of delicacy. My friends were seventeen in number. Nine was therefore the majority. Each man put his ball into the wicker basket with a narrow throat, used to hold the numbered balls when card-players draw for their places at pool. We were all roused to a more or less keen curiosity, for this balloting to clarify morality was certainly original. Inspection of the ballot-box showed the presence of nine white balls. The result did not surprise me, but it came into my head to count the young men of my own age whom I had brought to sit in judgment. These casuists were precisely nine in number, and they all had the same thought. Oh, oh, I said to myself, here is secret unanimity to forbid the marriage, and secret unanimity to sanction it. How shall I solve that problem? Where does the father-in-law live? asked one of my school friends, heedlessly, being less sophisticated than the others. There's no longer a father-in-law, I replied. Hitherto my conscience has spoken plainly enough to make your verdict superfluous. If today its voice is weakened, here is the cause of my cowardice. I received, about two months ago, this all-seducing letter. And I showed them the following invitation, which I took from my pocket-book. You are invited to be present at the funeral procession, burial services, and interment of Monsieur Jean Frederick Telefer, of the House of Telefer and Company, formerly purveyor of commissary meats, in his lifetime chevalier of the Legion of Honor, and of the Golden Spur, captain of the first company of the Grenadiers of the National Guard of Paris, deceased May 1st, at his residence, Rue Jabeur, which will take place at etc., etc., on the part of etc. Now what am I to do? I continued. I will put the question before you in a broad way. There is undoubtedly a sea of blood in Mademoiselle Telefer's estates. Her inheritance from her father is a vast asseldama. I know that. But, 
Prosper Magnan left no heirs. But, again, I have been unable to discover the family of the merchant who was murdered at Andernach. To whom, therefore, can I restore that fortune? And ought it to be wholly restored? Have I the right to betray a secret surprise by me? To add a murdered head to the dowry of an innocent girl? To give her for the rest of her life bad dreams? To deprive her of all her illusions? And say, Your gold is stained with blood. I have borrowed the dictionary of case of conscience from an old ecclesiastic, but I can find nothing there to solve my doubts. Shall I found pious masses for the repose of the souls of Prosper Magnan, Wellenfer, and Telefer? Here we are in the middle of the nineteenth century. Shall I build a hospital, or institute a prize for virtue? A prize for virtue would be given to scoundrels, and as for hospitals, they seem to me to have become in these days the protectors of vice. Besides, such charitable actions, more or less profitable to vanity, do they constitute reparation? And to whom do I owe reparation? But I love, I love passionately, my love is my life. If I, without apparent motive, suggest to a young girl accustomed to luxury, to elegance, to a life fruitful of all enjoyments of art, a young girl who loves to idly listen at the opera to Rossini's music, if to her I should propose that she should deprive herself of fifteen hundred thousand francs in favor of broken-down old men or scrofulous paupers, she would turn her back on me and laugh, or her confidential friend would tell her that I am a crazy jester, if in an ecstasy of love I should paint to her the charms of a modest life and a little home on the banks of the Loire, if I were to ask her to sacrifice her Parisian life on the altar of our love, it would be in the first place a virtuous lie, in the next I might only be opening the way to some painful experience. I might lose the heart of a girl who loves society, and balls, and personal adornment, and me for the time being some slim and jaunty officer with a well-frizzed moustache who can play the piano quote lord byron and ride a horse elegantly may get her away from me what shall i do for heaven's sake give me some advice the honest man that species of puritan not unlike the father of genie deans of whom i have already told you and who up to the present moment hadn't uttered a word, shrugged his shoulders as he looked at me and said, Idiot! Why did you ask him if he came from Bouvet? End of chapter 3 End of the Red Inn by Honoré de Balzac Read by Peter Strom On the Island of Tierra del Fuego On March 14th, 2019